Today's episode of The Watch on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. And they're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and Los Angeles, and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh hot meals to hospitals and clinics, fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. We are trying to raise $250,000. We still need your help. If you have the means, it is an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it is a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. Sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me on the front line of restaurant wars, it's Andy Greenwald. Happy Monday. What's up? What are you doing? I'm just doing weird hand gestures to you to try to keep things interesting. Greenwald on Zoom right now is making like the three point goggles, but two of them, which would be six point goggles. That's a six point play. It's Monday. Happy May, Andrew. Uh, Happy May to Kai. Happy May to all of our listeners. We've made it. We are here today to talk about some TV news, some Tiger King stuff, some Star Wars stuff. We're going to do a little Top Chef, as is become our pastime here. Very happy. And uh, we're going to talk about the first six episodes of Normal People in some detail. I don't know how much detail we're allowed to get on this family-friendly podcast when it comes to normal people. (laughs) But we'll talk a little bit about normal people. And in the second half of our show, uh, we have my interview with Tom Pelfrey, who everybody will know as Ben from Ozark, probably one of the like breakout star performances of the year so far, and a New York Giants fan. So that was was pretty sick for me. Yeah, we recorded that right after the NFL draft. So a lot of draft talk. Chris, every time I begin to worry that as the uh, culture spigot dries up inevitably due to the global pandemic. And I begin to worry, what will this podcast cover? Like, what will we talk about? I take no small amount of solace in the fact that you will still be covering Ozark season three long, long into the winter. The guy who was like the third player at a craps table (laughs) at the casino in Ozark. (laughs) For what it's worth, and I mean this genuinely, obviously a small sample size, but people really started watching this show. Yeah, and it is the Netflix effect in full effect, but on Netflix, not like it was also, catching up. It, I do think it was a leap season, and I think it becomes readily apparent once you start watching the third season that it, it has like it, the show has hit another gear, and it's quite clear that they did a really good inversion of the dynamics that sort of started the show, which was to have Marty be going from this basically on this Breaking Bad trajectory of going from being an accountant to this money launderer for a cartel, and then. In season three, they really flip it and make Laura Linney's character, Wendy, the, the sort of the boss of all bosses. I would say as someone, and I think everyone knows this, who has not kept up with viewing Ozark, but I've become a devoted fan of the Ozark coverage, thanks to my occasional presence on this podcast. I was wondering, when you interviewed Laura Linney, yeah. I'm curious why you never brought up her contentious relationship with her father, theater legend Romulus Linney, to the degree Mark Marin did in his interview with Laura Linney. You know what? I saw, I was kind of surprised. I didn't know that Laura Linney was on the podcast circuit like that. I thought maybe she 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 picked us out of the galaxy of pods. You know, it was like us, 
Chapo. Sure. You, you know, part of my take. And she was like, those, those watch guys, man, they've been putting in the work. That watch guy. <laughs> the one. But yeah, I didn't listen to the Marin one. How was it? It was great. It was, yeah. I, I, I say this sincerely. It was a really good conversation. She seems, I'm a huge fan and she seems like a really uh, tremendous person. That's really, she, that's, that's the extent of my take. Did she talk about being on the watch at all? Like not literally talking yeah, about it, right. but it was but kind she, of the undercurrent. It was like the, the, the backbone. Right. The umami flavor, if you will, thrumming beneath the entire conversation. Because she says, she's like, you know, the things that have really meant the most to me in my life are You Can Count on Me, Ozark, yeah. and, a, and, a, and an interview I did recently. What, what's kind of great about it, and I say this again, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of Marin's podcast. I really respect his hustle of being like, I have you on my podcast to talk about what I'm interested in. Yeah. And I've made it through, I think there's maybe like nine or 10 minutes remaining in the interview because, you know, no one commutes anymore. So I, I don't often find <laughs> so time to So when do you have like 90 minutes to listen to a Laura Lee? As, as opposed to driving home from, from editing in Culver City when I would have been able to listen to it twice. Near the end, I, I was noticing there's like 14 minutes left in the interview. And, I was, and he's like, so... I got to ask you, and I was like, okay, here it comes. It's just like boilerplate Ozark. He's going to be like, what's it like making this show that I don't really watch? And he's like, got to ask you, uh, tell me about making Congo. No, he doesn't really do that. But he, he's basically like, tell me about like, you can count on me and also John Adams and also Tales from the City and like running down her IMDb to such a degree that you realize he's not running down the IMDb. He is running away. Right. From the right. Ozark truth. Had he started with like, so who were your guys? Uh, oh, he had, no, he started weirdly by talking about the time he met with Lauren Michaels. It was weird because she's not relevant <laughs> to that. No, it's a great conversation. It really is. Um, but I'm going to continue, just so you know, to be the ombudsman of Ozark interviews after okay. you've spoken to people. Count on me. I can't count to Kenny on Lonergan. Yeah, right. Uh, you can count on me to follow up. I forgot to mention that you're being replaced by Janet McTeer. By the way, upgrade. <laughs> huge, huge, huge upgrade. Let's totally do a little bit of TV news before we get into Top Chef okay. and Normal People. Uh, a couple things. One was in a story that I feel like it was engineered. I, I was going to say engineered in a lab, but that's sort of a hot button topic to say that right now. <laughs> it was just, just, just use the more uh, politically correct term, wet market. There was a story that hit the trades today and it was widely discussed, obviously, that CBS Studios was going to be making a Tiger King show that mm-hmm. um, Dan Logano, who used to do uh, American Vandal, uh, which is a show I love, uh, is making it and is focusing largely on uh, Joe Exotic and that in a kind of algorithm has spoken casting choice, Nicolas Cage will be playing Joe Exotic. And uh, if you're confused because you thought that they had already started talking about doing a Tiger King show, uh, don't be confused. There are two Tiger King shows. And this is one of those funny things that sometimes it happens in the movies where there are competing... Uh, who's the jogger? That guy, Steve... Uh, Prefontaine. Steve Prefontaine. There were competing Prefontaine there were. Uh, movies. There, there have been... You With, know, like, they, they were called Pre and Without Limits. Right. Uh, By the way, off the dome. No IMDb. Nice job. I couldn't remember the name Prefontaine. That shows you how much running I'm doing these days. Uh, oh, do you want to talk about how much running I'm doing? We can save that for, for the last seven minutes. That fair. that can be your you can count on me, John Adams part. That's fair. Um, you know, we all, you you will see this happen in movies where competing like Leonard Bernstein biographical films will get mentioned. <laughs> Only but, the hottest properties. Dude, I'll fucking watch both. Of- I, I, I went on a real Leonard Bernstein run last year 
And I would be definitely down for the Bradley Cooper and the Jake Gyllenhaal version. Incredible. Wouldn't Incredible. you? I would, but you know, I just of all the things I expected you to say, I went on a real Leonard Bernstein run last year. I mean, I, you, you <laughs> never cease to marvel and de- you just delight me. It's great. Um, so I, I guess I want to approach this from a couple of different directions, but the number one thing I have is I'm curious whether or not people will still be outside of the casting, right? So you you get that that initial contact high of, mm-hmm. holy shit, Nick Cage is back and he's going to play Joe Exotic or Kate McKinnon in the, in, the, in the other production of Tiger King will be playing Carol. And you, you get like that high from finding out who's being cast in it, every, everything like that. And the internet had a really good time trying to cast this, you know, when Tiger King was really peaking when it first was released on Netflix. Is there any possibility that a Tiger, an adaptation of Tiger King can either A, add anything, or B, top the Tiger King we already have? Is there a, a chance? Of course. Of yes. course. Yeah. And that's why we do it. But we, it, it's, prob- this is problematic, not in the way people have been using the word, but in a, just purely from a business perspective, because as you alluded to, so uh, UCP, which is, in full disclosure, the studio where where I have a deal and where I do business, ha- has been pursuing a, uh, Joe Exotic series, they optioned the podcast that I think first put the story on a lot of people's radar. And they one of the first things they did was cast Kate McKinnon, I believe, in the Carol role. And then mm-hmm. it's been in development since then. And then the Netflix series drops and sets the world on fire. And now we find out there's a competing project that is using as its source material the Texas Monthly feature um, from, I believe, last year. Yeah. So this is one of those things where maybe in a perfect world, they could just combine forces because Nicolas Cage and Kate McKinnon would make a great team. But it also, amazing. to me, you know, I, I I can't speak to which project is better, which project is even going to happen because these are all just, you know, early stage development announcements. Um, and there's nothing saying there's not an, even more projects coming out because this was such a phenomenon. And, you know, as I've already kind of alluded to, like there are multiple ways to secure the story rights here because- yeah a podcast, a magazine feature, et cetera, et cetera. To me, what it what, what it speaks to really is something that's been going on for a long time and we've covered in a lot of different ways, but it's really, 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 really hard to get something made without pre-existing IP. It's just really, really, really hard. And so anything, whether it is a potential phenomenon like Tiger King turned into or or not, people just need a bucket or a vessel to pour whatever creative people they have under contract and whatever crazy ideas they have into or else the chances are it's just simply um, not going to get made. Yeah. So, you know, the uh, one of the things that will be interesting to note as Hollywood transforms and hopefully survives and thrives through this period in its history is what changes. Like, will, will there will more things be optioned and fewer things be made? I'm not quite sure because what we're seeing here is kind of this is this is also what happens with the uh, the podca- podcast Gold Rush. Now, you and I, you know, we have we're pretty DIY. We are the maximum rock and roll of podcasts. Like we've had m- multiple offers. That's right. You know, but we said unless we have creative control and casting, like we're just not going to let it happen. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I just think also once once Brad Pitt kind of aged out of of playing the Chris Ryan role, it just mm. seems like you just want to wait around. Maybe maybe this normal people kid, Paul Meskel, could do it. I, he could do the Irish accent, probably. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, we'd have to we'd have to see his audition tape. But but 
in all seriousness, we are see we do see, I think we are one of the few podcasts that has them an option. <laughs> I know. Um, and it, the people's appetite for stories once told, twice told, thrice told in different formats remains unclear, right? Because Homecoming, which our pal Sam did, another UCP production, um, was really well done. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what else to point to as other examples. I know Limetown was made for uh, Facebook, but other ones that sold or were announced in kind of splashy ways, like S-Town, haven't really come to fruition. But I think S-Town was optioned, if I remember. S-Town was optioned, and um, two writers who worked on Transparent and who wrote the Mr. Rogers movie, Micah and Noah, uh, were attached to do the television adaptation of that. But we're also seeing examples of things like Slow Burn, which is the you know very popular, excellent Slate podcast. Sure. Pursuing a two-track strategy, kind of not unlike what happened with the Joe Exotic story, although I don't know if they both derive from the same source material, which is to say that a documentary based on the nonfiction podcast, I think, went to epics. And then again, our buddy Sam and UCP were de- have been developing a scripted version of it yeah. with Julia Roberts and Sean Penn and people attached. So multiple versions of the same story in different mediums. I mean, can it work? Of course it can work. But I, I do think there might be there might be a market cap on some of this stuff. Yeah, it's very limiting to be... I, I don't like doing the why do we need this stuff because yeah, I think that could, anything could be, could be executed well enough. But I was thinking a lot about... Uh, the Tiger King thing is it brings up another example of something because I saw that I think they've shot a pilot for Showtime, which is the HBO uh, take on the early '80s Lakers with Pat Riley and Magic Johnson. How and, confusing! A sh- the show, a Showtime pilot for HBO. I know, yeah, and that that is one thing. But you know, while watching Last Dance, which has kind of swept the nation over, on these last few Sundays, I would I would argue Last Dance has kind of been the Game of Thrones of of the last couple of of weeks. You know, mm-hmm, for sure. It's, almost hard to imagine anything being as entertaining as that. You know, like, it it has the incredible mix of personality with the legitimate footage of people playing basketball, which I think it'll be interesting to see how Showtime handles that. And I I think a lot of that will come down to the participation of the NBA and what they're willing to grant in terms of rights. But, you know, for instance, something like Narcos, uh, it interpolates actual news footage of the actual characters that they are making a show about uh, into the show. Not in, you know, copious amounts, but you will see Wagner Mora playing Pablo Escobar and then you will see news footage of Pablo Escobar and it's clearly not Wagner Mora. I wonder whether they'll do something similar with Showtime if they're able to. Like they'll have, you know, John C. Riley playing somebody, but then also have the person John C. Riley is playing like in a news conference. I'm not so sure how they're going to do that. But with Tiger King, these characters are seared into our brains now if you've watched the show. And that show is pretty cinematic. It's not like mm-hmm. a Ken Burns documentary where you're like, okay, I feel like I'm really learning a lot. Like you are along in that in that show, you are riding along shotgun in a real a murder mystery, a comedy. Uh, kind of a heartbreaking drama. And and I wonder whether there's a ton more to do here aside from f- casting. Well, the question that I would ask Kate McKinnon, if I had access to Kate asking Kate McKinnon questions, would basically be, and, I, and, and I'm sure she couldn't answer honestly, but I wonder how the success of the Tiger King documentary on Netflix has affected her excitement about playing this role. Mainly because there's a big difference between... Uh, creating a character, whether it's based on someone real or not, and doing an impression. And once the real person has entered 
the cultural consciousness, especially to a degree that the characters or the people from the story of Tiger King have, there's a benchmark that you're going to be measured against. Yeah. And the number of eyes on you watching to see if you're veering towards pastiche or caricature is just really strong. And, you know, just by point of comparison, like, I don't know how many people knew who Aaron Brockovich or what Aaron Brockovich looked like or talked like before Julia Roberts was like, that's the movie for me. That's the role. And I don't think she takes roles this way. I don't mean to insinuate that she's just some sort of calculating uh, award season killer, but definitely the potential that she could have, you could have extrapolated her yeah. thought process into being like, that's going to yeah. get me an Oscar because that is a show-stopping performance. If the whole world knew exactly what Aaron Brockovich was like, people would watch Julia Roberts being like, well, she didn't really do that or look like that. And that kills drama, fictional drama dead. Well, I, I think it's worth noting that Dan Lagana is going to be doing the CBS Studios production of it because American Vandal is a show that kind of takes the Netflix docuseries model and that and that everything ends with a cliffhanger and everything yeah. is these reconstruction of crimes, no matter how minor or, or major, and plays within the, the sort of genre boundaries and, and form boundaries that that sort of bridge fiction and nonfiction. And I, I wonder whether or not for as much as we may be like Nick Cage is Joe exotic. Holy shit. The memes. I, I think actually they could make a pretty cool show about it. Um, the coolest thing about this, the the best to me, the most interesting execution would be a, a, a show about the, like it would be like, it would be like adaptation. It would be about the yes. adaptation of these people's lives and formatting it and bending it around a, a docudrama. I totally agree. And, you know, caveat, we know nothing about this project other than what was announced today that is in the public record. But I, my, my reaction to it was that the real get was the American Vandal guy, more so than getting Nicolas Cage. Because that, to me, at least suggests um, a creativity of Because Nicolas Cage is gettable. He's, he's very much available. Yeah. He's very much available. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, just in terms of approaching, the, approaching it from a position of, of flexibility and creativity in the thinking, I think that's kind of cool. Uh, let's keep it moving and talk a little bit about the Star Wars news that we had today. I This is Star Wars Day, apparently. Apparently. Yeah, may the fourth be with you. Uh, hashtag Geiger Counter. Hashtag uh, <laughs> Galaxy's wow. Edge. Yeah. Uh, hashtag um, blue, okay. blue Milk. <laughs> uh, it was announced today that Taika Waititi will be making a uh, Star Wars theatrical feature, which is noteworthy because I think that there has been a lot of mixed signals about what the future of Star Wars is in theaters, as there is obviously also a lot of uncertainty about what the future of theatrical releases is in general. But Taika taking on a theatrical feature is noteworthy. It's going to be written by him. And uh, Christy Wilson Cares, who wrote 1917 and wrote Last Night in Soho, which is an upcoming Edgar Wright movie, um, kind of a horror thriller set in London. And I think I bring this up. There's really no point in speculating about uh, what Taika Waititi's movie is going to be about. Although I think we could make some educated guesses about like, based on watching the Th Thor Ragnarok and, and some of the stuff he's done with um, Mandalorian, that he has a facility with like beasts of the realm and that, that I could see it being a very like creative, uh, creative movie in terms of like the species involved. But it does really feel like with this news, with the news about Leslie Headland coming aboard to make a Disney Plus Star Wars show, that we are seeing like kind of a real significant turning of the page in the Star Wars universe, a, a, a page taking a step away from the stuff that JJ did, taking maybe even a step away from the devotion to the original films and to the devotion to the Skywalker kind of mythos. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm very excited and heartened by this news. I think there's two things to say. One is there are very few people who who have proven they can do this at this level. And this at this level means make multi-quadrant, highly profitable, genre-based franchise-maintaining entertainment. Um, And what's the list? The list is Favreau. Uh, who's already done The Mandalorian now for Star Wars. The Russo brothers, who are working on a very, very lucrative pact at Netflix. Um, and um, who, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, James Gunn. Yeah. Uh, who's busy making a DC movie and then a Marvel movie. So Taika is an obvious candidate for this. And obvi- as you mentioned, he's already done work on The Mandalorian. So you can trust him to do it. And I think that is the thing that gets the people in the C-suite and even the people lurking outside of the C-suite saying, this is still my suite, like Bob Iger, can sign off on that happily right. and easily without losing any sleep at night. Um, Bob Chapek signs off on it. It goes into one of those tubes that shoots the letter up. And then yes. that letter just like goes up the chimney and burns in the atmosphere. And then Bob that, Iger signs the real thing. <laughs> that, exactly. Bob Iger is in the uh, the, the, the ducts above Chapek's office, marionette stringing his hand as he... As I really like the up. idea of thinking about Disney as the Hudsucker proxy. This is pretty fun. Honestly, it makes a lot more sense. It makes it yeah. a lot more appealing. Um, the other thing, though, that is is noteworthy and very exciting for us and our perpetually kind of dismayed attitude towards the dominant franchise of our childhood is that if there's a word to describe what J.J. Abrams brings to his franchise stewardship, it is reverence. If there is a word to describe what what Taika brings, it's irreverence. Yeah. And that is a huge sea change for uh, a company that moves this large, in such big moves and, you know, generally uh, in a quite conservative fashion. But it's also potentially quite exciting from a creative perspective, you know? And, yeah, and I, I think that, well, I mean, just, just here, let me just give you the, this, this is the test. This is the test for everybody listening right now. Would you rather see, and I mean, no disrespect to these two people when I mention their names, but would you rather see a new Star Wars movie uh, generated from, by David Benioff and Dan Weiss or by Taika Waititi? And I think that by any metric, it's Taika. By any uh, metric, no matter what kind of fan you are. Yeah, I mean, I think also the reason why you and I keep bringing these stories up, aside from the fact that they are inc- they 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 impact one of the biggest entertainment companies the planet has ever known, and one of the biggest entertainment franchises the planet has ever known, is that it's such an interesting story about, for lack of a better term, and I know that there might be people out there who are rolling their eyes at me putting it this way, but artistic vision versus corporate vision. That this is a co- corporation and specifically a shingle under this corporation in Lucasfilm that has continuously earmarked people that we think are interesting before they get involved with Star Wars. Whether it's, I mean, it could even be like Josh Trank. It could even be um, Gareth Edwards or or whoever it is. I mean, Tony Gilroy being involved in both Rogue One and now the Cassian Andor show. Uh, earmarking people like Deborah Wong, giving John Favreau a little bit of room to play in the Mandalorian world to make it more of like a serialized Western than or an episodic Western rather than some sort of long-form story. I, I find it really fascinating to watch these people interface with both a huge company like Disney and a huge brand, for lack of a better term, like Star Wars that has so many stakeholders, both in terms of the amount of sway fans can have online and the amount of cooks that are in the kitchen at Lucasfilm and at Disney. And in a lot of ways, I wonder whether or not exactly what you're saying is true. That Taika is 
specifically set up for success here because only he can do him. It seems like that he has a very unique and punkish voice in this system, but is still capable of making really entertaining shit. I mean, like his 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 Mandalorian episode was fantastic. But it's also it's the it's remember how he's entering into this. And it's very different than how Josh Trank entered into this, which is he's entering into this having won an Oscar. He's he's choosing to do this, right, after getting what is no doubt a huge payday for the the next Thor movie, but having mm-hmm. won an Oscar a few a short time ago for Jojo Rabbit, he this is the moment when he can do anything. And so he has his own heavyweight status walking into this. He can't get rolled. He can probably set his own terms and he will not be replaced. The other thing that I think that is worth noting about him, and it's something we've praised about him before that I think is really special, honestly, is he seems to have a super, super ability, superhuman ability to look at something that exists reach inside of it and pull out the strand that is the most interesting thing, even if other people hadn't noticed it. So much of the success of the last few Marvel movies, or at least those the big Avengers movies, was Chris Hemsworth comedic genius. Mm-hmm. And everybody loves Thor. <laughs> and that was not the case when Marvel Studios jammed two Thor sequels down our gullets. Yeah, I enjoyed their movies are fine. They're entertaining, but there's nothing special about them. Taika made that happen with his uh-huh. sensibility, you know, jiving and it's, and it's actually not the sensibility that was present, the humor sensibility that was present in like even the Joss Whedon movies where there was like a kind of knowing meta sarcastic bits thing happening, but it was largely driven by like Robert Downey Jr. sense of humor, which is really off the cuff stream of consciousness kind of playing within the moment stuff. The, the ability to like completely turn a character over on the skillet and say like this is actually the good side is pretty ingenious. And, and I would also say that, in, and I know we ran down our list of praise for Leslie Headland when this was this news first leaked a couple of weeks ago. But I'll say again, she's also done the work, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that that what's very impressive about these two hires and why they clearly were so excited to announce them and, and get this out in front of people and use this sacred day to them anyway to to share the news is because they're very, very confident. And they have a good reason to be confident, unlike some of the previous press releases that have really felt like they were chasing that short-term Twitter high of like, we had a general meeting with this person when they were hot and it felt like they were exciting in the room and then they haven't actually, you know, they don't actually have the, they, they have nothing to back it up with, at least they don't have the, they haven't shown they can do it. Whereas Leslie Headland, I mean, Russian Doll, obviously the credit is shared. Amy Poehler was a co-creator of the show and an executive producer. Natasha Leone is the star. It's her vision. Mm-hmm. It's her voice, without question. But if you think about what that show could have been, if you just dial it a few degrees down in terms of voice and style and filmmaking and ambition, it's still fine because sure. it's Natasha Leone in New York and you know there's a lot of fun to be had there. But I credit, and I think that Natasha Leone and Amy Poehler would also credit Leslie Headland for pushing it past that, you know, doing the hard work of whether it's, you know, storyboarding the scenes or whatever the nuts and bolts that she brought to that entire um, project were. Like, that's what you're hiring when you hire her to do this. These are not just Twitter headline hires. And I think that speaks really, I think that's a good sign for a company that needs to, because as we've been saying repeatedly for months and years, like, Favreau is essentially was the safest and best choice to put Star Wars on TV, and he did it. Mm -hmm. And he did it in a way that 
satisfied old heads, but also, you know, went viral with Baby Yoda and just made everyone feel good. Now we are, the, the, page, the, the page has been turned. We are post-Skywalker. We are post-Caretaker. You guys paid billions of dollars for this franchise. What are you going to do with it? These are cool choices. Yeah, I just hope for, personally that there is some internal appetite for a little bit, for some losses. Like, I just hope that in some ways that they can come back down to like normal blockbusters rather than if it doesn't make a billion dollars, it's it was a failure. And we're as yeah. guilty as as everybody else of kind of evaluating things based on what it does at the box office or what it does in terms of its cinema score or what if it does in terms of its Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes ratings. But for me, one of the reasons why Mandalorian worked so well is it kind of existed outside of that debate, mm-hmm. you know, and and there was enough time. There, there was a solid two months of conversation around Mandalorian that was like, that was a good episode. That was a better episode. That was a step back. Holy shit, that was a great episode. And I feel like I have a picture of what they want to do with this world going forward. Right. You know, that's one thing that these shows allow them to do is you don't have to win the day in the first day. I hope with the movies, they come up with a similar attitude where it's like, you know, look, like a Taika Star Wars movie will probably have a very high approval rating, but I'm sure there will be some people who are like, you are not taking this fucking seriously enough. Oh, for sure. But you know, the other thing, the backdrop for all of this is what is the movie business anymore? What is the entertainment industry? What is any of this? And when we introduced the concept of an Iger counter, obviously Bob Iger was in the job still, but also um, Disney was the, the one true Goliath of media. And that company is in serious trouble now. Yeah. Not like, you know, let's let's pour out our glasses. Or, no, but or, they or, have or two tears. of their main money-making arms are parks and ESPN, and there's no live sports, and you can't go to amusement parks. Don't forget about cruises. And cruises. Um, so just to say that, like, when a company is in trouble or when a company is suddenly against the ropes or any entity, that's kind of a telling moment because then do you play things safe? Yeah, or do you right. get more nimble and flexible and take bigger swings and chances? And since nobody knows anything about what any of this is going to look like, what kind of world is Taika Waititi's movie going to be produced in, first of all? Who knows? What, what, what's the situation with theaters going to be when it is released into theaters, whatever year that is going to be? You know, my hope is that, that they put all their, what's the, what's the monetary unit in The Mandalorian that they keep Bitcoins? melting down? No, no, that's, that's <laughs> coming for us. Uh, instead of, oh, ooh, I've got a good one. I've got a good analogy. Ready? Ready? Uh-huh. Instead of taking the money they have and melting it into armor to yes. protect themselves, smelt that shit. I hope they use it to make interesting new. I'm losing it here. I don't know what they you could make it into TV shows. Yeah, movies. bassinets for baby Yodas. I got, sure. I got you. Yeah, exactly. You, you with, you're with me. I got you. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about Top Top Chef and Normal People, and then later my interview with Tom Pelfrey. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Aura Frames. Aura digital frames are beautifully designed Wi-Fi frames that connect people around the world through a delightful photo sharing experience. Download the free app, set up the frame in minutes, and add photos. You've got free unlimited storage included so you ha- and the entire family can share thousands of photos from your phone to Aura's HD display in an instant. When we hear digital frame, we usually think of a plastic, gadgety, eyesore, which is not Aura. Aura's gorgeous living room worthy frames are shockingly simple to set up and they make it easy and fun to share photos from anywhere in the world 
using the Aura app. Plus, the super high-res, auto-brightness-adjusting display means your photos always look their best. Aura frames also make the perfect gift, and you can preload those photos and invite family ahead of time for the ultimate surprise. With Mother's Day just around the corner, what better way to show mom you care than giving her the gift of memories year-round? For a limited time, Aura is offering our podcast listeners 20% off their purchase with the code WATCH. That's 20% off with the code WATCH. Visit AuraFrames.com to learn more. All right, brother, we are back. Let's discuss. You want to do Top Chef or Normal People first? I want to do a little Top Chef and then we'll settle into Normal People because (laughs) I don't think... um, I don't know how many of our listeners are keeping up with Top Chef. I'm not going to spoil who's in or who's out. But I was so excited to talk about this episode. So excited to talk to you about this episode because... You know, again, I just I love this flavor combination of of old head and newbie. Yeah, uh, going through this journey together. And so, last week we were all fired up, and we were, you know, loving this Top Chef All Stars LA, and particularly noticing like as a, a a what I think is like an inflection point in the story of cooking on TV, let alone the show, when Brian Voltaggio subsumed his vision to uh, Eric's and then there was a great double feature of Last Chance Kitchen and it was just really Top Chef at its best uh, both as a show and also for us to discuss. Chris, this episode was one of the worst they have ever made. It was an abomination. Why? From start to finish they should be ashamed of themselves. Why? I don't have a take this strong so I'm almost like I'm honestly I'm hushed. I can't wait to hear this. The first part of it was acceptable and the first part the, the, the quick fire challenge, they did one of those things. You know, I spent, I did my usual spiel with you last week about how blah, blah, blah. It's not about like gimmicky stuff. It's ultimately about cooking. And then they have Danny Trejo be like, you can only cook with machetes. So, okay. I mean, that's silly, but. No spoilers, fine. but Brian Voltaggio, Voltaggio was like a beast with that sword in his hand. Brian Voltaggio <laughs> artfully skinning an avocado with a machete was <laughs> almost worth the price of admission. But so that was playing to the cheap seats. Like, that's kind of the gimmicky stuff that they can... Okay, a couple of those is fine. But really, we want to see these, especially these all-stars, cook. We don't really want to see them do stunts. Mm -hmm. Okay. This was the first time every season of the show, including Top Chef Jr., they always do Restaurant Wars. That That is the one thing you can count on every season. So this year, they decided to add a new wrinkle. Fine. Not a bad idea. Always can always, you know, you can always mess with success. And they added the pre Restaurant Wars episode where they were going to pitch a restaurant concept. Ideating the, wars. And the, you're starting to smell what I'm cooking here. Yeah. Um, where they pitch concepts. And they pitch concepts for restaurants to Stephanie Izard, who's a past winner, who's awesome, has a bunch of restaurants in Chicago. And some like Barracuda bro who represents, I don't want to say the worst part of the industry because we need finance bros, I guess, to finance restaurants. But definitely not the part of the business that I think Top Chef is best at celebrating. You know, I think when we talked about Ugly Delicious, we talked about how the best shows about food tend to romanticize it and not romanticize it in equal measure. But I like these people, these young cooks and chefs, because they are good at being cooks and chefs. Seeing them try to become like tertiary characters on billions on the fly was so dispiriting. It was, it was, it so, was really Shark Tanky. It was so antithetical to what any of this is supposed to be. Yeah. And so they spent 10 minutes of an episode of Top Chef watching these people make 
fucking Pinterest boards. Pinterest boards. Yes. Respect to Kevin, who won the thing with a great idea, but also on his Pinterest board, he just cut out a, food, a, a catalog, including the words China and plates. Like, he could not have tried less, and I respected the hell out of him for it. But to have Malarkey be, like, good at this and talk about how his project was going to speak to millennials who are interested in Asian food, but also the concept of street food as a sellable and scalable concept. Malarkey made, made me, a, a Baja Mexican street food concept. With Shrek, Shrek jokes. It made me want to machete myself uh-huh. to, to a degree I cannot stress to you enough. It was the worst of this. And by the way, it was also completely unfair because some of these people who have been veterans for a long time and have probably have better things to do than being on the show were like, yeah, this is my 15th concept this month, bro. Don't worry about it. And there are other people like Stephanie, who, by the way, thank fucking Danny Trejo that she got immunity, was like, I just cook. Stephanie was like, do you want to come to my neighborhood bar? I mean, yeah. that, I mean that was embarrassing. But I, I don't blame her for it. it, it I don't blame her whole, either. Um, I, you, they, do you not, so you don't want to spoil what happened? Uh, they just get too cute sometimes because they get they bored. They do, but every, what, I do find it strangely like when you lose, you lose for a reason. Yes, I respect that, of course. And I don't always like the rules and I don't always like the setups and I do think you're right. It's it's like sometimes they just throw these ridiculous wrinkles in or it's top chef, but it's really about top PowerPoint presentation or top, what mm-hmm. are you like in a room for 30 seconds? But the person who lost this pre-restaurant wars, restaurant wars, lost not only because I think they had some trouble communicating their concept, which was pretty high concept to be honest. Yes. Yeah, sure. But they also fucked up their cook. They well, that had a was bad the day. They admittedly had a bad day. And Tom was like, you just had a bad day. And I don't always love it. And I, always, I don't always love who winds up at the end of seasons. But in my experience so far, they're uh, more often than not, like, ball don't lie. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I actually don't quibble with how this decision was made and what happened for the reasons that you're saying, although I think it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I also do not mean to deny the reality of being, I mean, actually no longer a reality, the pre-March reality of being a restaurateur and a cook in this industry, in this world, in this moment. And God knows what it is now, but that you have to wear a number of ill-fitting hats. Yeah. Because being brilliant in the kitchen and being able to communicate a vision, or I guess not a vision, a taste, is a very, very different skill set than being a manager, than being a bookkeeper, or certainly being a storyteller, and I put that in quotes, that is necessary to convince investors and people to come to your restaurant. And some people are just really gifted at it in a way that feels genuine, like Gregory or Kevin, or as it turns out, Melissa. Other people aren't, like, dare I say it, Brian Voltaggio, who definitely has not read Catcher in the Rye, uh, and yet named a new Americana restaurant he was pitching after his son Thatcher and Rye Bread. If Um, Brian Voltaggio wants to do Double Down Book Club with us on Catcher in the Rye... Would love it. That would be There's incredible. Just, I guess the other thing that, that came out here, and 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 I, I can take, I will take this take, uh-huh. and I will I will bring it to the Dave Chang show if needed. But like, there was a an element running through this episode, which is something that is my biggest pet peeve about food and restaurants, and it's not yours. Which is, have you dined with us before? Let me explain to you how our menu works. <laughs> it mine predates that, which is that if you go to a restaurant's website, 
you should be able to find the information about when the restaurant has its hours of business and uh-huh. where the restaurant is located. But instead, you get like a 2006 level PowerPoint of like our story. Yeah. Our purveyors. It's like, hold, hold on, we're loading some animation for you. <laughs> it's like, I don't care about your promise. I assume your promise is that I will give you money in exchange yeah. for food. I'm glad your cousin made this short film. <laughs> What's your cross street, bro? Yeah. You know, like that, that's kind of what it boils down to. Is and this so open to, table or resi, man? Come on. To, to see these people get mired in that same word soup that uh, the bedevils like the entire industry. I guess there's something interesting about that, but I don't Look, think it was I, what they intended. I've been watching so much of this show that the seasons are bleeding together a little bit. But one of the things that I love about it is how the degree of difficulty of doing almost anything that they are doing mm-hmm. with the time constraints that they have seems so unbelievably hard just to do. I mean, I was watching somebody yesterday on Kentucky who just blew like two challenges in a row because they literally ran out of like the last two moments. They, yes. they One right. person, it was a, a person in Kentucky and they, they couldn't finish a scotch egg and then they like, they like honestly couldn't finish a sausage that they just got the casings wrong on. And you just see this, you know, it, it, it's, it's athletics, it's sports, it's Chris Paul like not being able to find the open man with like one second left. If you gave him eight seconds, he would have been able to find the person, you know, and I, I do really appreciate that. And I do appreciate the fact that while it's not always fair, it's always fair within the world of Top Chef. That's, I yes. guess that's my point. I wanted to ask you about one other thing, Top Chef, yeah, before we turn sure. this into a Top Chef podcast. But I wanted to recommend something. There's a, a guy who writes a lot for Pitchfork named Alphonse Pierre, and he actually has a a Substack newsletter that I was reading called The Leaks, which is he'll just so often like summarize a bunch of TV shows, his feelings on a bunch of TV shows. And he, he was writing about Top Chef this week, and you know I I obviously have a lot of affection for this season because it's set in Los Angeles. I think you feel somewhat similarly, although maybe not as affectionately as I do. And he was kind of talking about it like. This season's fine or whatever, but he misses Bloodsport Top Chef. Like he misses, and and I have noticed that these last few seasons, which I have enjoyed maybe more than the early seasons, are much more lovey-dovey. Yeah, They're much more like, we're all in this together. We're all trying to help each other. Hey, like, did you forget this? Like, I'll help you. Here's some of this. I, I got extra. Can you mm-hmm. flip my thing? Yeah, sure, man. I got it. Like I was watching a Kentucky one. People are helping each other on quick fires, which is, yeah. I, it's kind of amazing. And you watch those early seasons and people are like, I'm coming for your throat. And if I miss, I'm taking something else with me. And I was wondering whether or not you missed that at all. I don't at all. And I can, and I, and I, I'd say, I think that it is in itself a microcosm of the change in the professional kitchen overall over the last 10 years, which is the slow, some would say overdue shift from, the very hierarchical brigade system, as was created in France and followed to a letter by everyone, where the shit ran down downhill, right? Yeah. Where everyone was empowered to absolutely obliterate the person <laughs> just below him, often right. him. Right. Um, with you know, with any kind of language, with any kind of invective, with any kind of kitchen instrument at times. And that was how you did it. And then you, you know, if you if you listen to to Dave talk or or other chefs of his generation probably the last generation to do that. A lot they of them have- had to unlearn have, that, yeah. Not only unlearn it, a lot of them have a kind of, in my day, I had to walk uphill to school both ways uh-huh. in the snow, and these snowflakes today don't get that. There is definitely a shift in terms of just more of a communal spirit. And like, it's something that is both born of, 
you know, rejection of the outdated hierarchies, but also the rise of the open kitchen where you cannot right. Gordon Ramsay somebody because table three is within earshot and would choke <laughs> on their salmon bones or whatever. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's a reflection of that. And, you know, again, I am, I am type A, or I guess I should say type beta Top Chef Snowflake because I like seeing them cooperate. Right. I, because to me, then it does get down to like good sportsmanship and it is sports. Like I will help you plate this sauce because I think my dish is good enough to beat you anyway. So I, it was I, just, I, I it was that. such a bracing, you know, culture shock to go back because so many people who, who when I told them I was watching all this Top Chef were like, Vegas is like one of the great episodes, seasons of television of all time. And you turn it on and it's just the Voltage. It's just Michael Voltaggio telling his brother to eat shit. And it's, it's so bracing because you would imagine if something like that happened in Kentucky or Denver or LA, yeah. it would just be like these guys holding hands and being like, we're going to bring our food to, to the people together. So I, I, I thought it was an interesting note just to come across. I, I would also just say, I, I think that you would, you could look to, if there's a change in future seasons of Top Chef, that blah, 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 hierarchy of kitchens, but also look at the last few winners or at least the last few finalists and see how they've engaged with each other and who's emerged victorious. And it's almost entirely not the person who arrived with blood in his eyes. Right. You know, it, it's in, in the case of a recent season that I, I'm now getting super vague because you haven't finished, but in the case of a recent season, I, I, one of my favorite things about it is how shocked I was by the winner because That's generally cool. you can pick them out early. What would your what would your vibe be on Top Chef? Do you think you would be like failure, <laughs> just spectacular <laughs> failure? Uh, you would just be like a quick fire challenge. You just open a box of Annie's. I'd, like, <laughs> I'd just be like happy to be here, happy to be here. I would just be like open a box of band aids. Are you kidding? They hand me a machete. My 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 children today were asking what my signature dish would be like. If I was on a, a Top Chef show, like, would it be like the things like the pasta I make them or like a grilled chicken that I make them? And I, I, I almost started to explain like why I would lose immediately. Yeah. And then I just felt like, let, let me have this for a little bit longer. Sure. They have a couple more years before they start doubting you. I, well, one of them does. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do normal people, which I feel like now we've, we're, we're, we're all frothed up here. So, uh, Chris, I, I, I'm sorry to keep the spotlight on my home for this normal people conversation, but we have to be honest with the people. Like there were some incidents in the Greenwald home and the Ryan home over the weekend relating to this show. Yeah, it does Uh, feel it's the closest we've gotten to, uh, you know, like the game of Thrones war and kingdoms. So just a little backstory here. Um, we started watching the show last week here in Chamois and my wife really likes it. I really like it too. And as everybody knows, it's really fun when you, and it doesn't happen that often anymore, when you hit on a show that both members, if there are two members of your household, like really are dialed in on. And it just takes away a lot of the, what are we going to watch tonight? There's no power dynamic shifting. You're just in on it. And normal people, we are in on it. We are really digging it. And on Thursday, Thursday's pod, I just threw out a number. I was like, let's finish half the season. Can we do that? And you were, you said, and I'm going to quote you back. You were like, I'm basically there. So no big deal. Mm Mm-hmm. To do six. So like six. That's, okay. that's half the season. So we did uh, two. The next night we did two. The next night we did two more. Bam, six. Mm-hmm. Wonderful evenings of entertainment. Next day is Saturday. And my wife's like, let's, let's fire up Normie Peeps. Let's keep going. Let's keep it moving. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't. Because I have A, integrity. But B, 
the people, <laughs> and most of all, my my blood brother, Chris, are counting on me to have only watched six. And I want my conversation to be limited by that. You know, I don't yeah. want to get too far. Even though I've read the book, there are no spoilers. That's like, I want the, the conversation of the book to be that. And my wife says, well, that's, but Chris has watched the whole thing. I have not. I was like, excuse me? Excuse no. me? What do, what, do you, what do you mean? She's like, oh, yes. Chris has seen the whole thing. I know this because when we went to dinner, now that dates us. That's back when people could go to dinner. Sure. But the last time we, the four of us went to dinner. Late Obama era. Yeah. Your wife, uh-huh. who I do not mean to put on the spot here. She loves getting put on the spot. Said to my wife, oh, we got screeners of the normal people show and it's incredible. It's what we want to watch. So my wife filed that away and was like, Chris is a liar. Chris is lying to you that he's only seen these episodes because how could he have not watched it? How could he have let his wife watch so far ahead without him? That's an impossibility. That would never happen in our household. She then presented her case on video in a vicious, legally minded dismantling <laughs> on a video that I texted to you on a Saturday night. All due respect to your wife, who I love and I've known for a very long time. Indeed. I wouldn't necessarily call that like a searing indictment of me and my wife. I <laughs> thought it okay. was like a pretty loose understanding of what we had done. But this anecdote- I thought that I thought that in, in, in our defense, I thought that she was relatively measured. And then at the end of her soliloquy, I may or may not have yelled, you burnt. Yeah, you did do that. This actually segues really well to the thing I do want to talk about. I have only watched the six episodes. We've only okay. watched the six episodes. Um, I have not seen my wife in this state since Friday Night Lights, probably. Or mm-hmm. since it, it's essentially the thing where you love something, and because you love it, and because you have a sense of where things are going, maybe because you have spoilers, or maybe because you can just read the writing on the wall, you basically are putting staving off like that inevitable disappointment for the characters. And you know, Friday Night Lights, I think, was obviously something where there's a lot more happy endings than there are sad ones. But the air of, not tragedy, but disappointment. Well, we're not saying this has an unhappy ending. Not because necessarily, part of, no. Because part of the disappointment, I believe you're alluding to, refers to her knowledge that her time in this world is fleeting. That there are yes, only certain that's what I'm saying. So, so that you can have a temporal kind of thing. You can also have a thing where you care about characters so much that you kind of can't really, it's not very comfortable for you to be with them sometimes. You know what I mean? It's not comfortable for you to watch things go wrong for them. And I think that she feels that very deeply. I feel that to some extent. I think also it speaks to the phenomenon of the show to the extent that there is one. I don't know how it's doing, but I also don't know anyone who's like just meh about it. Like everybody I know who's seen it is like, this is fucking astonishing and I am in love with both of these people. I I think every metric for Hulu, not knowing any numbers, it's got to be a huge success because even if the numbers aren't um, Handmaid's Tale numbers or whatever they're using as their it's, benchmark it's a, for success. It's absolutely like unanimous decision success. Yeah. Culturally, it is. Isn't that odd for something so small to be so big? You know, yeah. it's just a love story. It's not, you know, it's, it, I, I, I feel like people are talking about Marion O'Connell the way that they talked about characters on Thrones, the way that they talk about characters where they're like, I can't live if this person doesn't make it or if these kids don't find love or whatever. Now, I think that part of that is because of what I said last week, which is that the show is almost 100% concerned with their emotional connection to one another. There is not a B plot here, really, after Mm -hmm. six episodes. There's not like, oh man, I really hope that his uh, athletic career works out. 
I hope he gets to go to Mexico and get that stem cell transplant. You know, there's no none of the Friday Night Lights stuff that distracted you from Julian Saracen or 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 Riggins and and Lila. No, or whatever. It, it is the pure uncut. It is. Yeah. And and I I I'd also I think we'd be remiss if we didn't say there's no way of calculating this. It's all history. But yeah, the degree that the the degree of success that the show is finding in relation to the moment when everyone is locked in their homes um, for good reason. But to put up a show that is this intense a blast of emotion, mm-hmm. of nostalgia for some people if you're of a certain age, and of pure horniness uh, when you're not allowed to go out and touch people if that's the kind of thing that you usually do <laughs> if you are not having 6 p.m. dinners with your wives and you're, good friends. In, in a lot of ways, you're not really allowed to go out and touch people. So I've heard things have changed. <laughs> this generation is so sensitive. But I, I think the real heads know what I mean. I know I hope, what you mean. If legally. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, so it, it's it's not, almost not worth it as a thought experiment. But I think that the moment has helped create the moment. I should also add, and I, again, full disclosure, because we are nothing if not just honest arbiters of our lives and culture on this podcast. My wife has now watched through nine wow. without me. What? Yes. How the fuck did that happen? How'd you let that happen? I, I allowed it. I said, you have to watch it again with me because I'm going to watch the rest of them. So she and fleabagged so, you. Yes. And as I found out, and we've discussed the time she fleabagged me originally on the it was, podcast. It involved fleabag. It, <laughs> it, it, uh, for people who don't know or didn't listen to that podcast, it's only happened twice in a very long uh, history in a relationship. Once was uh, when we were watching There Will Be Blood in the theater. And like an hour, two and a half, I was like, I'm so, I never do this. I'm so sorry. I have to go to the restroom. And she said, this isn't a good time to do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess she's really picking up on the storytelling. You're, oh, oh, wow, you're right. It was the moment when he takes his brother into the woods or whatever. Sure. Only like a couple hours later, I was like, Wait, how did you? And she had to admit she had seen the movie already. Okay. Fleabagging was that she, we watched the first two episodes of season two, said, uh, that, that was great. That oh, was really good. I can't wait to watch more. And she said, I agree. I think I'm going to stay up for a minute. Okay, no problem. Went to bed. Did not know she came to bed at 2.30 in the morning having After watched watching the, the rest entire of season. Fleabag. Yeah. For what it's worth, the fleabagging continues. <laughs> I have found out when I was in Albuquerque, other random nights in my life, she has just rewatched season two of Fleabag. The number, we are now approaching double digit watches. Holy shit. Season. So there's precedent. And I'm okay, again, because we've read the book. So I'm not, I, she can't spoil me. But this show has a hold on people, certainly people in this household. Is there anything particular from the episodes themselves? I mean, I was actually uh, struggling to think of, I mean, there are moments, there are lines that I love, but it it almost feels like a show that feels better to talk about in generalities rather than specifics because the specifics of any any given episode are so, not inconsequential because they're huge, but they're small moments in life. So it's sort of weird to be like, oh, I really like this moment where he was reading alone in a library. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that I think Paul Mescal is like, maybe the next brilliant actor of our time. Maybe. We don't know because, you know, there are a lot of people before him who have gotten a lot of praise in roles that require a certain amount of stoicism and silence and internal work. And so we don't have any idea what his range is. He's a really young guy, but there's something so like classic, classic about his performance. It is a leading man role rewritten for contemporary times. 
You know what I mean? He is completely charismatic, powerful on screen, even when doing very little, but devastating with like his internal life and sensitivity. It's yeah. pretty incredible. Uh, and, and and I don't say that to slight Daisy Edgar Jones, who plays Marianne, who's also wonderful, and the two of them together are magnetic. But I, I watching the next round of episodes since we last spoke about it, I've been blown away by his performance. Yeah, and they and they flip it where in the first few episodes she's the outsider, but she she tends to stick to her room. She makes a couple of forays at you know school dance and stuff like that. But for the most part, I think she's waiting for that part of her life to be over. And Connell is an unintended interruption of that waiting. When they are at Trinity, Connell is still making tentative forays into the world. And that's kind of the best part is watching him meet his roommates, go to these different parties, go to these classes, get more comfortable in his own skin, discover who he is, which is something that I think happens to almost everyone when they go to college, is that that's their first chance really in life to reinvent themselves, to reinvent themselves away from their parents, to reinvent themselves away from their hometowns and you know the people that they were before. And it's... It's not something actually that you find that happens that many more times in your life, which is what makes those years so vital and so so incredibly rich for for dramatizing. I think I have a lot of um, perspective on that at the moment because I've reinvented myself as a top chef candidate and long distance <laughs> runner over the last few weeks. So I can right. really relate. You know, I that's think right. the show is really like on my wavelength right now. Yeah, that's like Kaya McMullen reinvented herself as a below deck blogger. <laughs> we're all doing the best we can. Um, how do you feel? You know, look, we're in the tank for the show. We love it. And and more than the fact that we love the specific pieces of it, the performances, the music choices, the direction, which has been so, so remarkably steady, mm-hmm. which it seems like maybe like not the biggest piece of praise to give it, but it all of the scenes fit together like they were intended to to to, to be joined. It's like, like an Ikea put together instructions, list of instructions that actually make sense and works. And yeah. one of the biggest things I take I took away from my own production experience is holy shit, that never works out like that. Yeah. None of the scenes were meant to go in that order, almost always. And then you have to buff it and, you know, trick it and, and basically try to fool people. And there has to be an element of that here. But it's also just such confident, strong. It feels so. If, yeah, you're right. It, it feels like but, it was del- delivered fully formed. Like you're never like, oh, this this one thing is sticking out as either a flaw or right. someone showing off. Even in the but performances. The, but the thing that I wanted to say is, I think that what we're responding to and why we're sort of talking around it and 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 enjoying that is that I think that what we love more than the show itself is we really are love. We love loving it. I think we love watching it. You know, it is it is really rare not just because as you said it's so focused just on a relationship but there's really no um this is rare for a prestige tv show there are no questions there's no who did it there's no what's in the hatch there's no guys where are we there you know there's there's none of that it just feels like it's something kind of sumptuous laid out for you to enjoy and that alone feels kind of radical and especially pleasurable at this moment yeah, I think that we've been waiting for and longing for something like this to come along that felt like it was taking advantage of the freedom or the room to play that there is in television now that maybe doesn't always exist in the movies. It's not like a binary choice. There's plenty of incredible films, but I I don't know that when else would we have had an opportunity to see a, I guess what will wind up being a six-hour portrait of two people in the early part of their lives meeting one another and falling in love question for you that I think probably is a reasonable question from this section of the story. 
do you find yourself enjoying the times when they're not together as much as the moments when they are together? You know, obviously any relationship story, the the trick, if there is one, not just in the show, but in all of them, is the yo-yoing, right? Like, Yeah, the will there, won't there. But in this case, when, right, they're together, they're not together. And so when she makes that phone call where she's like, I kind of miss you in my life, you're like, Excuse me, Mr. President. Set the phasers. I've been missing you in my life, sir. (laughs) It's a wonder that you didn't get past the audition stage. It really. I know. It's just like, did they not like my tape? I mean, you know, I I felt like I was in the moment, you know? Yeah. No, you were definitely giving it your all. I think that was what they said as they ejected the cassette. You saw, so you sent it on videotape, which is a weird, weird move. Maybe, you know, maybe it just never arrived. Uh, do, Do you feel any. Does your interest dip or dim? Do no. you feel like yoked around in any way? You still- no, I, I really enjoy watching because I think part of um, part of the reason why romantic relationships are such a rich text for people to think about and write about and make make art about is because of the way that they shape characters and shape people outside of their relationships. You mm-hmm. know, like you, you know, I, I think that if you think back on that time in your life and the relationships that you had you usually came out a different person on the other end. And it was a lot of understanding yourself both with and without that person that kind of was so formative. I remember Mm -hmm. like several relationships that I had out of high school and in early college that I I look back on really fondly, but like it was like so much of what I remember, as much as I remember the other person, I remember the times when I was without that other person and like grappling with that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that in terms of the, the without the person moments in the show, the casting is really exemplary. I don't know how they did it and just found people who are the people on the page made flesh. Like it just, as I pictured them as immediately recognizable. And this is in terms of, you know, mostly I was going to say Marianne's friends because those are the friends at least yeah. at this point in the but show. They, they, they could have but, like ruined the show though. Cause Marion and Connell have such like a, a secret language and, a, and yeah. a way of interacting that you could have like, a really bad batch of performances, not bad performances, but just poorly contextualized within the, for around those two, around the main relationship. And it could really take the air out of the show and it doesn't. And I think they also just made some very canny choices and some canny editing. The character of Gareth, who's her sort of, you know, free speech advocate. Yeah. Uh, a couple ticks away from being like a full men's rights activist. That dude definitely has a YouTube channel now. Yeah. In college. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, you know, I don't know if there's other shoes still to drop, but that character reads a lot more loathsome on the page, partly because I guess you're seeing him first through Connell's eyes and then, you know, comparing him. Mm-hmm. The way they cast him and the way they presented him and then moved on from him felt really appropriate. It feels like that's a longer moment in the book and with a little bit darker undertones to it. And here it just felt like that's a dude in college. Yeah, it's some people, some, some people have been those dudes and then you can grow out of it. There's nothing, it didn't feel... Like she's made a fatal, she's not, she's made a very dangerous choice. She's just dating someone, you know? And I think that those little decisions and how something is going to be presented differently have just been just relentlessly smart. It's the thing that you can do with like how you dress a character or how that character Mm -hmm. does his hair or how the character walks or how the character approaches another person that you can explain all that stuff that might take 11 pages. It's the way it can just be gestural. If anybody wants to do the thing that we sometimes talk about where like you do kind of a meta rewatch of something and think about it from a, you know, a craft point of view, just watch Connell's introduction in the first episode 
as a god in high school and then watch how he's filmed and dressed and made up when he arrives at Trinity. And this is also credit to the actor, but but serious credit to the costumer and the makeup artist and the cinematographer who did the lighting and the director because it's physically a different person. Yeah, it's like he, you were the man back in high school and now your backpack is corny. Like you get yeah, and, to you get to Dublin and you're wearing your backpack and people are like, nice backpack. And you're small and you're alone and you're not just wearing, you know, and that the tussled romance of the loose tie and the, the yeah. football pitch. I mean, it's just these little things. You can lose yourself in those as much as you can lose yourself in the romance. We're, obviously, we love the show. So how do you want to do the rest of the show so that people know, mostly my household, how to follow along? I mean, it seems like we're going to be done with it on Thursday. I, it, we could be done with it on Thursday. It's I, cool I, you want I, to do it. I would love to, you know, just I would love to to stretch this out because we're enjoying it so much and who knows what's coming down the pike. But I, I feel, A, certain that it will affect my home life if I don't commit to finishing the series in the next three days. And B, I can rest easy knowing that you have another Ozark interview lined up for <laughs> next week. I'm not sure who. Maybe someone actually in the Ozarks. Yeah. Now I'm interviewing Mark Marin about his Laura Linney podcast. I would listen to that. Uh, speaking of which, I have coming up next is my really fun chat with Tom Pelfrey, who people have gotten to know mostly through uh, his performance of as Ben on Ozark. I also got to talk to him about his turn as Martin in uh, Fool for Love, uh, Sam Shepard's Fool for Love. He was oh. in the Sam Rockwell production a couple of years ago. So we talked a little about that, a little bit about New York Giants, a little bit about his upcoming role in the next David Fincher film called Mank. Where he plays Joseph L. Mankiewicz and he's yeah, acting opposite Gary Oldman a lot. So really cool interview, really nice guy and, and, and an absolutely incredible performance. Greenwald, until Thursday, I'll talk to you then. Stay safe, stay inside. Great job, Branskis. I will never stop having people from Ozark on this podcast, and it was a no-brainer to have Tom Pelfrey on. Tom plays Ben on this third season of Ozark and has been routinely the person that, when I'm talking with people about actors on TV right now and, and stuff that they're watching, they're like, yeah, but what about that guy who played fucking Ben on Ozark? You know, like the real breakout star <laughs> this year. So it's such an honor to have him on the show. Tom, what's going on, man? Hey, brother. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. I am breaking an unofficial rule of the Watch podcast by having a Giants fan on on this unofficial <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles podcast. Oh, is it really? It's a well, Philadelphia Eagles podcast. Me and Andy are in LA, but we are from Philly, and uh, you know, I mean, we've we've given each other so much over the years, though. You, you know, the Giants and the Eagles. <laughs> no, we we sure have, man. It was a race to lose the division last year. How do you feel about your uh, second round QB? <laughs> I'm a little bit uneasy about it, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, it's not like the the first guy I would have chosen. I, I like Hertz from what I've seen of him. He seems like a cool player, but it just seems like a real when you need everything to go get a, se- a second QB just because you think he's going to be good company for Carson in the QB room is kind of weird. How are you feeling about the Giants draft? <laughs> I feel good, man. I feel good. I mean, we've needed an offensive line upgrade for years. I just, you know, I loved Eli so much and just watching him get murdered year after year. Like how many years did you turn on the TV for uh, the first game of the season and see Eric Flowers get beat on the outside and get Eli get rocked. So, yeah, yeah, it was good to see them go for, you know, the O-line. We got that safety who I guess is steal. So, yeah, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, you know, Saquon's beast, so block for him and we'll probably win. How good did it feel to watch the draft? Just, like, to have something new to think about? Yeah. No, it, was, it did. It I did. watched it's, the... It's, uh, 
all the rounds. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I was. I, I just had it on. I was just like, oh, this is great. This is just like, I don't know who this kid is who played at Fresno, who's going to the Jaguars, but like, let's just totally. get into his whole story. You know, because like, there's just like, you're, you're basically just confined to like whatever's on TV right now. Um, no, and there was like a sense of normalcy and excitement, people celebrating. It was good. It was like an infusion of positive vibes. Yeah. One of the other things that I've been doing while sort of working from home here is uh, I gave myself a little project to read a bunch of Sam Shepard plays, which I, I weirdly like never read them. And so like I got kind of got oh, wow. some of his books. And so I was reading about Fool for Love and I had no idea. I didn't know that you were in the, the, the Fool for Love on Broadway a couple years ago with Sam Rockwell. Yeah, it was actually, as, as if I understand it correctly, which is so weird to me, you know, growing up with Sam Shepard, reading his plays, working on them, our production was the first time that a Sam Shepard play had been produced on Broadway, which wow. really blew my mind because there's so many famous productions of Sam Shepard plays that like for actors, especially actors coming up in New York, they're like legends, you know, like. John Malkovich and Gary Sinise doing True West and Ed Harris doing the original production of uh, Fool for Love. You know, like these productions are sort of these mythical things in your mind and you imagine that they've happened on Broadway, but none of them had. Yeah, that's wild. And I was, you know, I was, I was kind of, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I thought it was interesting to think about Martin, the character you played in Fool for Love a few years ago, and then obviously a Ben on Ozark and... It's oh, interesting because they're both outsiders. Yeah. You know, they're both kind of joining a story yeah. mid-flight. And I, I was curious whether or not you ever take a step outside of the roles that you've done and think about the connections between characters or if it's always just more of a, a matter of choices that you make in the moment and, and luck, you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's a really interesting observation. That, that wow. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what I've never can you tell I have some time on my hands <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what man that is a that is an A plus for preparedness I mean <laughs> Thank you. that was that was pretty damn impressive um, you know what what does strike me and this is something that I've heard a lot of actors talk about and it's very strange but the roles that you play tend to correlate with what's happening in your life to some degree. Now, it's never like an obvious one-to-one -one correlation. It's never literal, but that there's something about energetically or expression-wise that like you find yourself wanting to explore something in the character that you feel like you need to explore for yourself in your sure. personal life. And I've heard a lot of actors talk about that, and that's just such a weird... It's almost like a magical part of the process. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the casting in in Ozark was to some degree magic too. I mean, one of the people who's very a person who's very near and dear to this pod because she, she's been on before and we've corresponded with her, you know, on email is Alexa Fogel, and mm -hmm. I know that you have this like long running professional relationship, and we've heard from Alexa's side of things like. This idea that, you know, as, as a casting director, you can kind of keep your eye on somebody even if they don't get the role that you initially, that they maybe initially read for you. Because uh, you went out for Generation Kill, right? I did. Yeah, that was, the, that was my first time auditioning for Alexa. I went out for Generation Kill. I don't remember what role, but, you know, uh, Alexa can be very stoic. So I read the role and she said, mm, I think you're right for this role. So she gave me a different role. I went home, came back like the next day or a day later. 
read for her again. You know, the audition sort of happened. She didn't really give me much. And then my agents called like uh, the next day or something. And they were like, so you're not going to get the role, but she thinks you're incredible. And she never, she never says that. So I, I just remember, I mean, I remember that audition in that time so specifically because I was so young and obviously I didn't get the part, but I got her validation as a young actor, casting director who, you know, cast the wire amongst other things. <laughs> yeah. Says that you're incredible. It's like, okay, well that'll sustain me for a while. You know, like not all the wins look like jobs. Sometimes the wins are that person has their eye on you and you know, they think you're doing good work. Did you keep in touch with her? Did you see her at other editions? I'm curious about like the circuitous route that brought you to Ozark because you've obviously been doing really cool work in Banshee. You're obviously on Broadway. You've done all this other stuff, but it does seem like this one, this one was really catching lightning in a bottle. Yeah, no, for sure. Ozark is a very special job. And like for a job to be that special, there's it's operating good on so many levels that are just completely out of your control. But yeah, no, I mean, Alexa and I, we would stay in touch just in, in the form of auditioning, you know, just over the years. She would always have me in for projects that she thought I was right for. And it was just a professional relationship where we really respected each other. I really, I like the way that Alexa runs her room, you know, different casting directors run a room differently. And I mean, it was probably, I mean, we, Alexa and I probably didn't even have a personal conversation in an audition room for like seven years. And then we finally started talking about our dogs. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was just like, it was this person who, and this is something I admire about Alexa, but she just, it's all business when you're there to work, you're there to work. And so, you know, again, it was like seven years before we even had a conversation that was in any way slightly personal. So, um, yeah, it's like a long, slow build of a relationship. And now I would say we're friends and obviously she casts me on Banshee. And, um, so yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool to have a relationship build, uh, for that many years. Yeah, that's neat. Uh, I, I was curious whether or not since if if we're talking about this in almost a decade and a half uh you know uh time frame here is there without getting into like personal details but is there something about where you're at now that made you feel any more ready to play a part like Ben than maybe earlier in your life did you do you feel like Ben is a a character that you need seasoning for for lack of a better term yeah i mean there's there's different things that are well one thing right off the bat is like you can never play something that's bigger than you. Like I had a, a great acting teacher once who, who was encouraging us was like, yeah, you need to be in acting class, whatever, but really you need to be out there. You need to be cultivating your brain. You need to be cultivating your mind. You need to be expanding your heart. You need to be expanding your knowledge. You need to make yourself the biggest human being possible so that you can play whatever you need to play. Because if you're small, if you don't understand a lot of things, then you get a role that's big. You can't play it because you don't know what that is. So you need to be able to identify all the things. So a role like Ben, yes, is I think that, you know, you get older, you learn more about yourself, you go through struggles, you go through hard times, you understand yourself better. I mean, I feel like that role for me came at, the perfect time in my life in terms of 
understanding of myself. Um, and to some extent, the, the understanding of yourself that allows you to feel comfortable and safe to be so vulnerable, you know, to be so vulnerable in public with basically a bunch of strangers, which is what you're doing when you're filming. And then the other thing is just the not boring side, but the more like, you know, nuts and bolts side of understanding through experience what you need to do to be prepared for a role like Ben, like even before I'd read all the scripts and stuff, when I understood the bipolar and I understood from Chris Mundy, some of what might be happening with the character, it, you know, it, it flip, flips a switch in your brain that says like, okay, I better be prepared to have a lot of energy. Like right. I better make sure I'm in tip top shape mentally and physically because you know, you see some of these scenes that we filmed, the scene is three minutes long. Well, it took us four hours to film that. And so you're doing the scene over and over and over. And every time trying, you know, every time is slightly different, but every time it's fully alive and you're, and you're really giving everything you got. And that's exhausting. Yeah. You know, at the end of a lot of those days, you just completely wiped. Like you almost forget what your own name is. And, you know, if you're younger, you might, find yourself in the middle of a day like that. And then you've run out of gas. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're, you just have nothing more to give, but you still have another hour and a half to shoot, which, you know, with the experience comes like, okay, I know, even if I don't know specifically what's coming, I have an idea that what is coming is going to require a ton of focus and a ton of energy. So I better start getting myself in shape for that or mentally prepared for that now. So that when I show up and that, the day i'm not the one dropping the ball you know um so that that i mean that's just something that you learn with experience yeah and i would imagine for an episode like fire pink where ben's energy levels and his state of mind but even physically there are so many ebbs and flows for him in that episode where he's exhausted or he's torqued up he's scared he's defiant he's sneaky he's vulnerable like you have to go through pretty much the entire gamut of human emotion in that episode i would imagine that that would be the specific example of you're almost doing athletic training to do an episode like that yeah yeah episode nine um at the end of episode eight when i go and confront uh helen you know played by janet mccure it's like you know you're we're filming that scene and it's like 105 degrees outside in Atlanta in the middle of the summer. And you're having to do that, like charging down the hill, yelling, flipping the table, getting in her face, all that stuff for four hours. So that, that, that was just an example of like physical endurance on some level. And then, yeah, when like episode nine, so many of those scenes, sure, the emotions, all the energies all over the place, but I will say, when you're when you're working on those scenes in in episode nine, when you're working with someone like Laura Linney, that is creating. Um, I mean, in the most beautiful way possible, she is so good and so present and so open and so generous in the sense of like holding a safe space to work that you're almost getting energy from her. 
you know, and of like, course. and and certainly so many of those scenes surprised me that the way that they played out, like you sort of prepare and you, you get yourself ready for a million different possibilities of the way the scene can go. And you just want to show up prepared and play. But then you work with someone like Laura, and this is why working with the best actors just makes you better. Because, you know, for me, working with someone like Laura in some of those scenes and just the way she showed up and just the way she was looking at me or the way she kind of played the scene opened something in me that surprised me. And then the scene became something else. And like, that's, that's the dream. That's, that's the stuff that you, that you do this for. You know, like when you can go to work fully prepared with a good idea and you come home from work and you go, I have no idea what just happened. Like that's a good day, you know, and all of those scenes with Laura in episode nine were good days. You know, she's a master. She is who she is for a reason. And she just made me better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a remarkable episode of television, partially because I don't know if this makes sense, but you guys are both doing things that are so big, like the emotions are so big and the the feelings are so big. And and obviously it becomes relatively apparent over the course of the episode that there's just a decreasing number of, of off ramps for Ben here. And it just becomes a little yeah. bit more tragic as it goes. But then there's just so much stuff happening with just like the way you guys are drinking a soda or like the way you guys are eating fries together that transmits a sibling familiarity. That's just an amazing thing to see two people who I, I would imagine don't have much of a relationship before you start working on Ozark together. That's right. No, that's right. That's right. And again, credit to Laura because it's her show and obviously she's Laura Linney, but right from jump, you know, right off the bat, she was so kind with me and open and just down to earth and talking and supportive and made me feel like I'd been there working on the show with them from the beginning and certainly made me feel comfortable as if we had a closer relationship than we did. And that speaks to her, you know, kind of generosity of spirit. She's yeah. a very supportive and giving partner. Yeah. Did you and Lord do much work with Chris or with the writers thinking about specific backstories or specific familial history for Wendy and Ben that maybe isn't on screen or isn't in the script? That's interesting. I mean, Laura and I had a few conversations about those things between ourselves. That was never a conversation that I had with Chris or with the writers, but it is entirely possible that that's the kind of conversation that Laura had had with Chris or the writers. Um, but for myself, no, that was only conversations between Laura and I just to kind of get on the same page. And uh, yeah. Yeah, just to kind of, I just was wondering whether or not you're like, oh, how many times do you think they've seen each other in the last 10 years? Or do you think when they meet, would. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, no, totally, totally. Those kind of conversations. When's the last time we saw each other? What was it like? You know, for sure, for sure, all of those things. You know, I, I think obviously just given the information that transpires on the show, they definitely hadn't seen each other in a few years. Um, right. but it was more fun kind of talking about what it was like in childhood and, uh, what the relationship was and what were some of the moments that you remember, you know, things like that. Um, I was curious, I suppose this, some people might think this is an obvious question, but have you, have you watched this season in full? Cause I know some people don't love watching their, their themselves on screen. <laughs> 
I did. You know, I'm I'm up in the Catskills, and my house doesn't have fast internet, so it took me a while to finally <laughs> figure out a way. <laughs> like I cannot stream anything, so <laughs> it took me a while to figure out a clever way to watch it. But I did finally get to see the season uh, like two weeks ago, and um, yes, so I've watched it. I thought it was beautiful. You know, I'm a fan of the show regardless i was a fan of, i loved the show before i had anything to do with it so um yeah it was exciting i thought it was a great season i was curious because i knew that you were a fan of the show beforehand and i was wondering you know you had that you've talked about the conversation that you had with chris that outlined in broad strokes what was kind of ben's arc and i was curious right. whether how, how it's different watching as a as a viewer versus as a performer does it give you a different perspective on Ben's tragedy? You know, because like when you're playing a role, I, th- I imagine you have to be in the moment, every moment for Ben. You have to be playing him as if he's got it. Ch- he, you know, he's just in that present tense. Whereas as a viewer, and especially as someone who maybe is going back through those episodes, you're kind of like, I am seeing this guy's fall, essentially. What's that been like? Well, I mean, it was just so, it's just so sad. You know, I, I think Chris and the writers did such a beautiful job of, you know, kind of. It was it was it's like the the way that they wrote it was like really good tragedy in the sense that the the ending was kind of inevitable from the beginning. Yeah. You know, like to me that 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 that's a really that's a really deep and true kind of tragedy whereby like the circumstances that we've set up and the characters that we've crafted, if we're being true to all of it means that the inevitable conclusion is disastrous. And yet we're going to play it out anyway. And it's painful to watch anyway. And it's heartbreaking anyway. And, you know, I just, I, I, you know, it's interesting because like you were saying, you, you have a different mind space when you're playing the character. But when I was reading episodes eight, episode nine, before we even filmed them, I couldn't help but first read them as an audience member mm-hmm. because they moved me. I thought I thought it was just beautiful. I thought the writing was beautiful. The story was sad. And so then then I went back and worked on it as the actor, you know, but I was so sort of overwhelmed by the writing and by the structure of it all that that my first experience of it even reading was kind of as an audience member. That's amazing. Yeah, I was. I'm always curious about how people feel about that, especially when they're playing a character like Ben, who has this. He has the the last sentence of his story written. You know, he has. There is a. There is a. You know, a a, a period at the end of his sentence. So, I, it's it's interesting to understand like how you would go about crafting a character, knowing that there is like this actual endpoint for him. Yeah. Well, it's always it's always what are they what do they want. You yeah. know, what are they, what are they trying to get? And, and again, credit to the writers, but there was, it was always crystal clear with Ben, what he was trying to get. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I want to let you, uh, let you go in and, and enjoy your slow streaming speeds up in the Catskills. But, uh, <laughs> um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, cause I'm, I, it, it's one of the things that I'm really looking forward to this year is, is the film you worked on with Fincher with, uh, called Mank, which, it sounds just absolutely incredible. I, I know you're probably sworn to secrecy about it, but I guess my question yeah. would be: is uh, is working with with David Fincher everything it 
it sort of sounds like it must be. I mean, just it sounds like it, he's. Oh just... man, yeah, dude, it's it's <laughs> it's surreal. It is surreal. You know, like that guy is obviously he's a genius. He is a master at what he does, and he's really funny. Like he has an amazing sense of humor, highly intelligent. So sure, when you're sitting on that set, as I was, where my acting partner is Gary Oldman and the guy giving us notes is David Fincher, you just kind of pinch yourself. You're like, here I am in the midst of two kind of icons, you know, two masters of what they do. And that's a great place to be because you learn a ton um, you walk away a better actor. And, you know, in the meantime, I was laughing a lot because both of those guys are funny as hell. <laughs> Do those guys ever reference their past works like casually the way you, anybody would reference their own kind of like their week or their life or their year and make casual reference to something like Seven or Al- uh, Sid and Nancy or something? And you're just like, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of that. Thanks for, for, the, for the heads up. <laughs> No, I mean, not, not so much like, not so much either of them, but because I had more time with Gary where we, you know, when you're an actor on set, chances are you're going to have more downtime than the director. So Gary was very generous with me with basically letting me nerd out on him, you know, (laughs) like he basically let me ask as many questions as I wanted to ask, which to be fair, Laura Linney also did was like, what was it like working with Sean Penn and Mystic River? What was it like working with Sean Penn on State of Grace? <laughs> oh man, State of Grace is a great shout. Tell me everything. Tell me everything. Yeah, that's a good guy. <laughs> what did you ask Oldman about? What's the Gary Oldman role that really jumped out at you? I mean, oh God, there's so many, but just State of Grace, just such a great movie. That's a movie that I feel I like mean, has been lost to time and is a huge movie for me. That was a really big yes. movie for me growing up. And I feel like that has not gotten the revival. I agree. I I totally agree. I mean, oh my God, I thought that movie was so good. And, and Gary's performance in particular is just perfect. I mean, that to me, that's like an iconic performance. Like when I was 18 years old, going to college to be an actor on my wall was hanging up a picture that was a still frame from state of grace with gary oldman and sean penn and i think they're like walking together and gary's got a 40 in a brown paper bag yeah the leather and they got the leather jackets totally totally dude like that film to me is classic, you know? And so, yeah, he let me, he let me kind of geek out of it. Oh man. And I, in honor of this, I'm going to go rewatch state of grace soon. Uh, that's, that's a great, Hell yeah. great call. <laughs> Tom, thanks so much for calling into the watch. Uh, hope you're hanging in there and, and congratulations on Ozark and everything that's to come. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time and be safe out there in LA and hopefully we can do it again soon. Yeah, man. Take care. 